This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 207 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Hands On Gloves, the all-in-one revolutionary bathing grooming gloves. Horsemanship Radio is part of the family of the Horse Radio Network, and today we have two you know, Mustang lovers. They're both Mustang lovers, but from different worlds altogether. This is Debbie Laux, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month, and I have my producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. Greetings. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I think this is going to be a lot of fun today this because is be I fun. I did this interview um, first a few weeks ago with Dr. Sponenberg because I wanted to know I needed a quick drill on Mustangs coming from different parts of the United States. And I thought, I got to talk to an expert. I, I, I felt like Jamie Jennings, who always like has a problem with her horse. So she calls in the expert just so she gets free advice, you know, <laughs> for, for her horse. But, but I did, we, we were, we were getting ready for a gently wild horse course. And we were all set to look for our summer stock of wild BLM Mustangs or whatever Mustangs, uh, you know, grade Mustangs that we, we could get that were pure equus for our Gently Wild Horse Course. And somebody had mentioned this Phil Sponnenberg, Dr. Phil Sponnenberg. And I thought, I've got to have him on because um, he he has such a niche, Jen, that he actually has spent his lifetime on working to preserve the Mustang lineage. And by that, you know, some somewhat controversial, uh, but he's not. He's he's lovely. You'll just love him um, because he cares so much that we don't lose the past. Some of that DNA, it doesn't get diluted down, that the breed stays as pure Mustango as we believe it is. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't know about that um, leveling out thing that we're doing, which can actually make a breed domestic or otherwise extinct. So we we don't want that to happen. It's too important. And then we had to have dad on because what happens the first Saturday of every May? Kentucky Derby! The Kentucky Derby happens. And some people are happy about that and some people are not. But, but that's a tradition in our family. How about it yours? is. It is it is for me too. My favorite thing to do for Kentucky Derby is to tell everyone to go away. <laughs> I start my DVR about at least an hour before the coverage starts so yeah. that I can fast forward through the stupid commercials. Because some right. of them are fun and you want to watch them, but some of them are stupid. So I fast forward through those. Um, and I watch the whole thing. And spoiler alert, a long shot one. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm, really, I'm really curious to hear the feedback you get from everybody on Monty's take on this year's Derby. Because believe it or not, kismet for us. Monty's take on this year's Derby and Dr. Sponenberg's work in equine genetics, they relate to each other. Wow. Yeah. Did that. You're going to write like papers on this. Afterwards. Yeah. Really, yeah, really interesting insights from Monty on this year's Derby and so very well put. And now I haven't had a chance to listen to Dr. Sponenberg yet, but I'm really excited about this because 
I think of genetics as diversity, the whole, um, when animals are left to their own devices, the genetic diversity waxes and wanes to fit the living conditions of the animals. And when their living conditions uh, change, hopefully the genetics can keep up with it. But he's got a very interesting take because where where they're living and how they're living and how many are living, that's all being changed a much, much faster rate than what the genetics can keep up with. So I'm really curious about this. So yeah. we're going to listen into that. But before we jump in to Dr. Sponenberg, we need to hear about hands-on gloves because they're going to change your grooming life in a hurry. Since we're all into genetics a lot this episode, I thought it would be fun to learn and talk a little bit about the genetics of the hands-on gloves. Ha ha ha, look at me. <laughs> Jay Michelson, owner of Hands-On Gloves, spent a lot of his adult life producing movies and TV commercials and documentaries. It was after writing and directing his award-winning documentary called In a Whisper that he his passion for horses began to resurface from his childhood. We've all experienced that where you love horses as a kid and something happens in your adult life and it all comes flooding back. And with very few choices available, he groomed and bathed his horses with old-fashioned curry combs and that drove him nuts. (laughs) So that's the experience that drove him to invent hands-on gloves. That's right. So he decided that he would take a hiatus from Hollywood. And so Michelson set out to change the grooming world for all pets. With equine the population as a primary target, right? He wanted his horses groomed first. He quickly learned that every animal, like horses, dogs, cats, the ones were around cattle, rabbits, pigs, donkeys, depends on how farmy you are, you know, wanted to be brushed and gently massaged. And most importantly, they wanted to be loved. So this was his way of being more relational and getting back to his roots with his, with his own animals. That's right. And it's no secret that all of the animals in our life are happier if the human and the animal can have a good relationship. And studies have shown that just petting animals can reduce stress and cause feel-good hormones to be released. And who doesn't just love that? <laughs> That's right. That's what we're looking for. So in 2016, hands-on gloves finally went mainstream. They patented it, and it was revolutionary. It was a de-shedder. That's how they marketed it first. But it outperformed every other traditional curry comb or bathing mitts that were on the market. And it's changed the way that pet parents bond with their two-legged, three-legged, four-legged family members, you know? Oh, and it was ranked. Yeah, it was ranked number one. You were going to say this, right? Yes, Ranked number one on QVC. <laughs> I think that's in both, both the United States and Europe. It's pretty incredible. There you go. And you can get a pair or two for your fe- four-legged friends. You can get some. They make great gifts, too. And I'm going to say it again. Mm-hmm. I say this regularly. One of my favorite things about hands-on gloves is the plural part. Because when you buy hands-on glove, you get a glove for each hand. And everybody knows how infuriating it is when you groom a horse, you get halfway through the horse, and your arm is tired because it is only one hand of the glove, right? One hand. You get two, so you have a choice. You can share share with friends. 
you can wear one on each hand so that your arms don't get tired. Or if you're like me and you want to groom in a hurry, you can groom with both hands at the same time. And if you've never done that with your horse before, watch their face because they get a little confused. It's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> so head on over to handsongloves.com and check out yours today. They come in three sizes, four sizes. Yeah, they have a little kid size too. They have yeah. sizes for all hands and they come in different colors and they come two to a pair. So check them out today. Wildlife are not the only animals that have become endangered. Most people are unaware that many breeds of domesticated animals also face the threat of extinction. Each breed of animals is a unique genetic package, just like the wild species are. The difference is that the breeds of domesticated animals reflect their history of partnership with human owners for specific purposes. As breeds become extinct, so too does that rich history and relationship. This situation in the United States is monitored by the Livestock Conservancy, which has a long track record of successfully standing between endangered breeds and extinction. Well, that was written by Dr. Philip Sponenberg, an author of Managing Breeds for a Secure Future, Strategies for Breeders and Breed Associations. Dr. Sponenberg is a professor of pathology and genetics at the Department of Biomedical Sciences and Pathobiology at Virginia Tech. He received his DVM, his Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, from Texas A&M University and his PhD in Veterinary Medicine from Cornell University in 1979. He joined the faculty of the college in 1981, and his research interests are in the conservation of rare breeds. Well, welcome. We have Dr. Phil Sponenberg on today. I'm really excited to talk to you, Dr. Sponenberg. Can I call you Phil? Sure. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's nice. Thank you. And I believe you're in Virginia right now. Is that where you're hailing from? Yes. I, I, I teach at the vet school here in Virginia. Virginia, Maryland, College of Veterinary Medicine. Yeah. So I went to the top. I had some questions about genetic preservation and conservation of the Mustangs, and we we actually brought some back from a holding pen last week, and it got me scratching my head about what's being done to preserve our Spanish Mustangs and colonial Spanish horses, those different names and everything, too. So I thought, man, I'll go right to Dr. Sponenberg. You've written lots of articles over the years. How long have you been kind of focused on genetics and pathology? Oh, um since the mid 1970s. Since the mid 70s, oh, wow. yay! Okay, yeah. now you can't get much more learned than that. So I appreciate you taking some time with us today. And um, I wanted to have Monty on here, but I might have to do it in a second tranche because he had such a busy schedule with our Mustangs. I'll excuse him by saying last week we adopted four Mustangs that are. Um, I feel like. And maybe you can tell me that they're right in there in the you know Spanish lineage, but I don't know how to know that. We've got a Dun, who's an eight-year-old Dun, who's gorgeous and strong, and you know they they've been feeding them, so that's happy making. They've got some pretty big feet on them, so I imagine some crossbreeding, but I don't know. And we've got a Palomino, and we've got a Pinto Dun, and then we have a kind of a gray black horse too, maybe a Sabino, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, so 
I might, after this week, we have a Gently Wild Horse course starting today. So, of course, we brought them in last week to get them settled in. And they're still pretty darn spooky. So, like, you feed them and leave them alone because they won't eat if you if you stare at them. So, um, the, the first question I had for you today is, is there a process for inventorying this breed? Is, is there like a depository or something where organizations or owners can go to get this valuable information that's been collected over the years? Um, probably not in one single source. And mm-hmm. what happens is um, the, the conservation effort is fairly fragmented. Now, there, there's some umbrella registries that cover different strains. The Spanish Mustang Registry is probably the oldest one, and the Spanish Barb um, Horse Association is another one. Southwest Spanish Mustang Association is another one. And the Horse of the Americas is a fourth one that's fairly comprehensive and sort of an umbrella. And then a a different uh, local origin, so like Florida Cracker, Marsh Tacky in South Carolina, mm-hmm. some of the banker horses, and then uh, like Prior Mountain, Kiger, they'll, they'll have independent registries that only cover that one strain. Um, so, and now, so far, so good. The problem is people are very, very opinionated about what should go in and what should be excluded. Mm-hmm. And so there's no, it's not like a not like Russian dolls where they kind of nest within one another. Um, so, because everybody's going to exclude something that somebody else is going to include. Mm. And so it gets a little bit more complicated. <clears throat> so it's complicated, and that's just what you're stuck with. Yeah. A lot of, you know, a lot of people are, um, you know, very, very definitely want that Spanish influence for a host of, you know, historical and other reasons. Um, and documenting that is actually reasonably difficult. So we usually go with, um, in the past anyway, just inspecting an entire group because a group is more likely to tell you things than an individual horse. And then I worked with Gus Cothran on the DNA typing. I do not do that. He does that. So, I, But um, over the years, uh, the more, you know, what do you look like and the more DNA, those have always agreed. So it, it actually does hold water. And most people like the DNA better because it looks scientific. But the other, you know, your eyes and your brain are pretty powerful tools. So. Uh, right. <clears throat> yeah. So the typing will, yeah, I was going to get into that and, and ask you a little bit more about that. M- maybe at the top of this, we should define what is a Spanish Mustang versus a colonial Spanish horse in the USA. Is that an evolution or is the same thing? Or what do we? Um, it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, the problem with the word Mustang is, it's it's really generic and it's any wild living horse, um, so that that gets to be a problem. And then a whole lot of the different uh, threads of this important breed um, never were, you know, free ranging wild horses. And so the, using Mustang was a little bit um, inaccurate. And then also people expect Mustangs to be kind of wild and crazy, and um, depending on their breeding and depending on their um, care a lot of them aren't <laughs> so you know it was important so i, I prefer colonial spanish just because it, it tends to then not confuse with the mustang other people like mustang so it's just a matter of choice okay all right i like colonial spanish as well because i uh i i think keeping keeping some of that dna they're so versatile i mean we can go into the all this 
reasons why we love this breed if, if it's close to the Spanish barb. But versatility, intelligence, survival mechanism. I mean, I always joke that if um, I had to put money on, you know, the, the the rocket scientist running around out in the desert or a Mustang, I put my money on a Mustang <laughs> or my it right because their survival instincts are incredible, and mm-hmm. uh, they've been doing it for a couple of centuries out there too. So I read that you you believe that there's a need for a complete inventory of the remaining undocumented horses. Is that happening? Well, no. I mean, it, it's it's more and uh, more the, and more difficult to get that yeah. done. Um, most uh, over the last decade, horse breeding and horse ownership have sort of taken a real hit, and so just general interest has kind of taken a hit too. And a lot of this, um, it, it complicates people's lives. Um, I'm, I, I'm, you know, a lot of these are in BLM herds. I'm sympathetic to some aspects of the complexity of their job, which I do not want yeah. um, because they have, there's a whole bunch of different um, oh, agendas out there. And so actually making all those fit together is really, really difficult. I only have one agenda and that one agenda is trying to save unique genetic resources. And that is a very, very different agenda than saving every horse life. Um, sure. Which is fine. I mean, it's not to say that the other one's not legitimate. It's just that, that that one's mine. And so that's how I approach this. And so sometimes that frustrates people because, you know, I'm only interested in focusing on the ones that are likely to be fairly pure descendants of this old colonial Spanish um, origin. And, you know, people are going to poke holes in that one way or the other. But so far, it's it's held up. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, you you mentioned the breed associations and the registries, but um, articles that I read by you, too, said that you look to to get to help the breed persist. You look at highly isolated herds, Indian herds and, you know, traditional thinking Indian herds Mm -hmm. and organized breeders and ranchers. Are there any of those that you would say, gosh, they're really doing it right? Um. (laughs) <laughs> sure. Hmm. Um, large ranches, probably not. Um, I've always been impressed with um, what Bryant Rickman in Oklahoma has been able to do with the Choctaw horses. Um, and then as, as far as, you know, it's scattered here, there, and everywhere. I mean, there are there are good breeding programs. Um, so a lot of the people that are involved in the SMR, the, in, uh, the umbrella registry, so SMR, SSMA, um, SBBA, which I guess now is SBHA, um, and HOA. A lot of them do a, a really, really good job. Um, and then th- those are the umbrella organizations. And then within the other ones that are more you know, tightly focused, you're going to end up with some really, really talented breeders. You know, and again, it's a slightly different um, a goal that they have. So, you know, like when the Florida crackers got some really, really good breeders, Marsh Tacky's got some really, really good breeders, but they're only focused on that one line. And and that's the difference between uh, survival and extinction. So it, right. it works quite well. Yeah. And, and there's some commonalities, I, I assume, that you probably appreciate about them to identify and accept as purely Spanish. Um, I think the three the, th- the three that I read that you had mentioned was external, historical, and blood type, which you had mentioned earlier too. But are there any other commonalities of the ones that you appreciate that um, we should take to heart? Well, I, I think that 
that covers it pretty well. Mm-hmm. And now y'all are doing a, an essential part, which is the idea of training, making the horses useful yeah. Yeah. to people, because that, that's going to be essential for any horse in the long run. You know, and that um, that's going to depend on the use of the horse and all that. But um, mm-hmm. and some people have really, really, really different goals. And that that's that's interesting to see because even across the Americas, if you go to Chile, the horses are a little bit different than the horses in Argentina because they expect the horses to do different things and behave differently. And it's sort of interesting to watch those differences come out. Yeah, well, I appreciate that mention about training too. We do we always think that horses are going to you know make it in this culture if they are a little bit more educated. Um, or that we're more educated and we can we can help them. But I I do sympathize with the complexity of keeping horses wild on the range. It's you know it is it is a difficult issue. So we but there's so many in the holding pens right now too, right? So if that's already happened, then that's where we kick it in with the education, and we do have a, a course called Gently Wild Horses. But we we. It, actually take them further than that we use them for our advanced course and then we use them for our mid you know line courses and then gosh darn if we don't even use them with our veterans program where they where they come in you know once they've they're so smart once they've been gentled and they're so generous then uh, even our layman can handle these horses but we do have a really defined way of putting them through a sense a system of desensitizing gently we breathe them into areas rather than run them into areas. These that came off, I actually have a bruise on my forehead right now because these that came off the trailer last week, they are only taught to run everywhere. You know, they don't, um, they don't breathe them in it. I know that sounds odd, but people who've listened to the show before know how we use diaphragmatic breathing to signal to the horses that everything can be relaxed, you know, and that mm-hmm. our adrenaline is down. And there just seems to be so many educational things that we can tip people to. But anyway, um, I'm on my soapbox there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> back to the, back to the breeds is where I'm really interested in. Um, there, there are some closely related breeds, Peruvian Pasos, um, I know headed, you know, to the South American area too. Do you, do you ever chase after any of these other, uh, you know, Criollo, I think went from Spain down to South America. Is there anything that would help somebody know that they, um, would like to, I hate, I hate to get breeding when we know that we can go adopt these beautiful horses, but are there other breeds that you've seen that have taken the best of the Spanish and uh, done well by them? Well, um, yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. You know, of course, I'm biased, but um, the, <laughs> the whole history of introduction of horses into the Americas is really, to me, interesting. You know, so they first show up um, being shipped early on in the Caribbean. Those horses were relatively unselected. And some of the historical documents actually indicate that they were pretty common. And then that early um, that early thread actually ends up um, populating most of North America and also Chile, which is sort of interesting. And then later on, people will bring in highly select later horses from Spain, which changes things a little bit. So there, there's a lot of commonalities, but there's also differences. Um, and I was actually helping the Chileans. And I, if you ever, I mean, if you haven't been, you need to go. Um, they, they have a rodeo that has one event 
And this one event is a pair of horses um, pinning a steer up against a barrier. Mm. And so, and it's all done like a lateral canter. So like the youngest horse in competition is probably eight. Most of them are 10 to 15. And so, yeah, they're automatically selecting for trainability and athletic ability, soundness and longevity. And um, they're, they're very, very kind and generous horses. And you had mentioned that before. And one thing that stuck out in my head was they had two-year-old colts that they were running through a chute. And then at the end of the chute, you know, somebody was flipping a plastic bag in their face, which seems rude. Yeah. You know, and, 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 one, and one of these colts, you know, kind of, you know, backed off 10 feet and just watched, you know, very, very calmly. And I thought, okay, I want that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. You know, and, you know, so, so some of what they're doing is actually... Yeah, you know, working on the genetics. You know, they they want a horse that's going to evaluate things and look at things and then make a you know a logical decision. Now I realize, I mean, these are ranch raised horses; they're not wild horses to begin with. But you know, that sort of thing, and it's that it's that mentality that's um, quite interesting. And then you get back to the the whole background of the horse. So, you know, Choctaw horses were always raised by the Choctaw Nation. You know, whether they were free ranging or not, and so everybody had to be safe. And so a lot of those horses have that same attitude that even if they're unhandled, untrained, whatever, they're, they're interested in observing you. They're interested in keeping everybody safe, you know? And so that, as opposed to a horse that's got multiple generations of completely wild existence, you know, something different maybe going on in their heads. Um, though obviously we can work with that. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting endeavor, but there's, um, I do work, I work across livestock species, so I work not just with horses. And when I am, a lot of this work is actually with other types of criollos in South America. And they agree that what we're trying to save for horses looks remarkably like what they're trying to save for horses. So it, it fits in with, uh, you know, that whole hemispheric effort. I want to go to Chile now. That's fascinating. I hadn't heard about that at all. And, and that's... Uh, not just one unique um, place, or is it throughout Chile that they have this competition? It's throughout Chile. Uh, you need to you know, check on YouTube. You can see them. <laughs> but it, um, it's 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 pretty amazing. I mean, you don't you don't want to be the steer. I got that. But, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, but if you had to if you had to choose one single event for you know, breeding and training horses, you know, this would come real close to it. Because they're they're sound and they're long-lived and, you know, that's what you need. That's what I was going to say is my favorite word that you said in there is longevity. That um, Mm -hmm. I don't know why all breeds don't breed for longevity. That's um, like, sorry, thoroughbred industry. You know, to me, you're going backwards on that one. We're, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. we have a transition horse program here where we retrain the thoroughbreds off the track. Most of them come to us four, five, six years old. Um, That's pretty young in a horse's life. So, and that means that they are already done with the first career, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. Um, I, I guess I got to ask this. If you were given unlimited resources and and you were tasked with identifying and sorting and saving the Spanish lineage, what would your approach be? Well, uh, uh, the first thing would be a complete inventory of what's out there. Um, and that. That gets, in case you hadn't discovered in life, everybody has an agenda. And so sometimes the agendas, you know, color what's going on. So, you know, it'd be nice to have a really, a really complete um, 
inventory of what's going out there, um, gone out there, especially in the free-ranging herds, and then also the um, herds under domestication to you know to figure out what's going on and how it's all going to fit together, and that ends up being extremely difficult. You know, and, and I'm not poking holes at the BLM because they have a really really difficult. Um, job description, but um, I, I do think that there's been an inadequate effort to where this type exists. And this this is not predominant in very many BLM herds, but where it is, it seems like we ought to be working to save it. And that, um, again, is not a real high priority because everybody comes to them with their own priority. And so then they get, you know, they get hammered from every direction. And no matter what they do, somebody's going to complain. So it really is... Mm-hmm difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. So, um I'm I'm going to get behind you whether you're the czar or not of this <laughs> of this thing. I I like what you're you're saying and where you're going with it and maybe we can do some work together too to try to get through this training part and maybe we can train mm-hmm. up some of these colonial Spanish horses um if we could find a pipeline of those that you think would be um of course, you know, we're going to get them gelded, right? I mean, we're, if we adopt them, they're going to be gelded. It's not us gelding. It's They're already there. But, you know, if there's anything we can do, Monty and I, to um, help you identify and sort and save the Spanish lineage, if there's anything that uh, helps people recognize their um, benefits and variety, then um, let just let us know. And I appreciate you being on Horsemanship Radio and giving us all your knowledge. Well, and that's fine. And also what you're doing, I mean, especially on this, I mean, even if it's a gelding or a mare, if it's a good one and it has a certain lineage, um, then that builds a demand. It know? does. So that helps the breeders. Yeah. Thank you for acknowledging that. I totally agree. And we would we have a platform that we can use for that to say good things about the breed. And we do like doing that. It, um, it should turn the conversation around from what are we doing about it to this is what we're trying to do about it and help us out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. Thank you, Dr. Phil Spannenberg. I hope we can have you on again. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. What if adding just one product to your feed regimen could help your horse recover faster from a show, get relief from inflammation, reduce his nerves, and ease his digestion? If any of those benefits sound appealing to you, then check out American Harvest Premium Hemp Extracts and Equine Hemp Pellets. American Harvest's natural equine hemp pellets are vet-formulated and produced from natural hemp. The palatable pelleted formula is manufactured with potent raw CBD using no chemical processing, so your horse will love the taste as much as you'll love the benefits. If you prefer a liquid application, check out American Harvest's THC-free CBD oil or premium hemp extract, which provides CBD from hemp extract. Look for the full line of American Harvest products at your local equine shop, any Hubbard dealer, or online at store.altech.com. Monty Roberts, known as the man who listens to horses, has led an extraordinary life. He is an award-winning trainer of championship horses, New York Times bestselling author, Hollywood stuntman, and foster dad to 47 children, in addition to three of his own, and creator of the world-renowned and revolutionary equine training technique called Join Up, a gentle way to cause a horse to accept his first saddle and rider in about 30 minutes. 
Over 70 years ago, Monty discovered that he could utilize the nonverbal communication that goes on between horses. This changed everything for him about working with horses. Well, welcome back, Monty Roberts. How are you? I'm fine. And you? I'm fine. I was really excited to talk to you today about the Kentucky Derby. Were you just down training? Is that where you just zoomed in on your truck? Yeah. Yep, training a few thoroughbreds. So you're you might not be known to everyone in your circles that you were a trainer of horses, preparing them to go to the racetrack and or um, repairing them (laughs) to go back after remedial issues. How long was your was your career in the thoroughbred industry? Well, I started in I retired from the Western competition world in 1966 and started this farm in 66, designed it and built it in 66. So it's 57 years now um, that we've been here. And from day one, it was nothing but uh, thoroughbreds. I mean, I rode in a Western saddle uh, some, but uh, I didn't go in competition after that time. So it's, uh, yeah, 60 years, uh, 57 years, uh, strictly in the thoroughbred industry and globally. Globally, yeah. So suffice it to say, you have some expertise in the thoroughbred industry and training thoroughbred racehorses too. I wanted to hear a little bit um, your perspective uh, long-term on the thoroughbred industry. And one of the big things was a lot of people are turning back to thoroughbred racing as an entertainment man i think they had 145,000 people at the derby <laughs> this yeah. last year, last year so it is quite popular rich strike coming from behind was it 80 to 1 winner of the Kentucky Derby do you think that was good for the industry to see that was it that cinderella story is that something that um, injects a, a little new blood into the into the visage. Yeah, I think um, it's wonderful that a horse that was uh, thought that little of, and just remember that somebody dropped him in for 30,000 claiming uh, a few months, uh, I guess, before the Derby. And then those people showed incredible courage to continue to try to get in the thing when they looked as though they had no chance at all to get in it, let alone to win it. And then to win it, it it shows you, you never want to sit there on a big chair somewhere and be pompous about blaming people for anything. Uh, You don't want to blame people for dropping him in for Mm 30,000. Now I wonder if he didn't attack somebody in a stall somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got frightened of even handling him. So they put him in a claiming race and he got claimed. Ah, because he had a remedial issue. Mm. I hadn't yeah, thought of that. Yeah, he, he, he didn't just acquire that um, mentality, that brain set, uh, in the race called the Kentucky Derby. Um, and those people that would sit in a huge judgment chair somewhere and put that man down for what he did at the time that the horse was attacking his ridden horse, where he was riding and attacking his leg at the same time, Mm. those people have to stop and think, what would they do if they'd have been in that same position? I can tell you that most 
anybody, including this man you're talking to right now, would have probably bolted away from him yeah, and let the jockey have a chance to take him wherever he wanted to take him. Mm-hmm. But that guy stayed in there. And he stayed in there using whatever techniques he had to. And that became a war. That, and he, he was against uh, a, an opponent that outweighed him by 10 or 15 times. Ah. So uh, with teeth that could just break your leg off uh, with one bite. So you, you don't want to just blame that guy for what he did. Yeah, Nothing he did was aggressive at the start, he didn't cause that. The horse just attacked his horse and um, probably took a chunk out of his neck the first thing when I saw that second one. It was a revolution, revelation to me because I hadn't noticed that he really attacked that man's horse before the guy started doing strange things to his own horse, which now I see uh, were just simply to try to put an end to it all. But God, give him credit for staying in there, the brevity that he showed to stay stay in there and get back to the winner's circle, for crying out loud. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know how many Kentucky Derby winners have been gelded, but this one might be, mm-hmm. um, because I, I, I'm not there. I don't know what's happening in the barn in the morning. I don't know what caused him to go uh, so rank and uh, aggressive. But um, those things just don't happen very often. Now, it is strange that on this particular year, Debbie, I had two horses um, sent to me as yearlings. That is to say, they came in December, so they were almost two. And uh, I was to start them in the spring of this year. And uh, two of the four males that were sent uh, became very aggressive toward people in the stall Mm -hmm. in the stall and uh, I recommended to the trainer who's a a leading trainer that he castrate them and he went to the owners and they agreed to castrate them and I never had anybody beat them up right but there were a couple of times, Debbie, when I was worried about my help I going know. in the stall. They came at him with ears back and teeth open, and 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 nobody had been uh, aggressive toward those horses. Yeah. yeah, they just had testosterone flowing, and uh, they had a competitive spirit. They were big, they were strong, and um, they were, as you say, steady mm-hmm. or studdish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Frank. were overwhelmingly aggressive. Yeah, they're castrated I think, now. Yeah, and those they're are, training very well as geldings. It gave so, them a, uh, gave them a focus, or as uh, as our friend Jamie Jennings says, uh, brain surgery <laughs> was performed, and they're yeah. they're they're different boys now. But to the credit, I will tell you too, I was able to see a little bit more about the post race. So for those who didn't see the Kentucky Derby and are wondering what we're talking about post-race as you walk back to the winner's circle. And everybody was very excited that a come from behind, definitely come from behind. He had a turbo boost at the end and a, a long shot won. And everybody was so excited. And then suddenly the camera, unfortunately, kept staying on this 
war that you described too. But I, I did see the interaction with the groom later in the day. He has a regular groom. It's a wonderful man. Dixon is his name. And it looked as if the horse had completely calmed down and that he had a very, very warm and relational um, uh, observations between them. You know, in other words, he was relaxed. His eyes were soft. Everything looked really great in pictures later. And I, I do believe that he probably regularly works with this groom and is a happy boy back at home. So it makes me think, Dad, what is it? That is it just testosterone on the track, the, the the fire of the competition at the time, or some people said, and I'll just you can laugh if you want, but some people said it's because his tongue was tied down, and uh, some people said it was because he was jerked on his mouth so hard that he actually started fighting. But um, this is what I, what I worry about is that this is another black eye for racing, um, unless it's deserved. But I, I have a feeling this is more of an anomaly. What do you think? Well, I think it's an anomaly, uh, Debbie. And, you know, you put a horse like that out there, and to him, to be with 18 or 19 other horses, mm-hmm. all males, um, is a war. And he won the war. And his adrenaline was peaked out. And I think he wanted to fight all horses. Look at me. I am the biggest. I am the toughest. You've seen boxing champions mm-hmm. after the match when they knock somebody out, go around jumping and leaping and yelling how strong they are and, you know, probably wanting to beat up on some more people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of adrenaline rush that this horse had, in my opinion. And there's not a lot of people to blame here. I I really don't. And if he was nice to the groom afterwards, that's a, I didn't know that, but that's a very good uh, sign that he has a nice side to him and uh, that maybe they won't have continued problems yeah. with him. I hope they don't uh, because he may be banned from racing if he were to attack another horse yeah. in the race itself, you know, mm-hmm. Um that that can be very dangerous for the life of jockeys and horses alike. So, um, yeah, I mean, people get to a position where they think they know everything and they want to start blaming people. And, uh, there's not a lot to blame here because that guy was, was saving his life and trying to do a good job of getting the horse back to the winner circle. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the, and the business of, of blaming people, when you, when you want to blame somebody, if you take a needle and put artificial substances into the vein of a horse on a day when they're banned from being used, you can blame that. that that's a conscious effort on the part of a person to do the wrong thing. Yeah. But... Um, I was going to ask you about that, too. Do you think that drugs in racing have anything to do with this? As you said, you have horses now that are getting a little bit more up on their toes. Is this, but you weren't drugging your horses here, so it's not that. But are we seeing more um, bad behaviors, do you think, because of drugs? Well, I think, Debbie, Debbie, there's quite a few things happening in the world of genetics here. Um, 
if you have a horse, do you want thick walls on the alveolar sacs of their lungs? Yeah. Or do you want very thin walls? Well, we're breeding them with the thinnest of walls because the oxygen goes through quicker and gets into the bloodstream more rapidly, and they can run faster. And uh, I was in Dubai with a group of veterinarians seeing some experiments run, and they said, what is this? And I looked in there, and you couldn't believe the difference in the pattern that I saw in this microscope. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking, I said, what am I looking at? And it was the lungs of a camel. (laughs) And camels have very thick walls on their lung alveolar sacs. Why is that? Because they're in the heat and they just trot all day long and they can go 100 miles in a day just trotting. It's unbelievable, the stamina that they have. The thoroughbred racehorse needs thin walls because he has to go fast for a short period of time. A minute, two minutes, maximum two and a half minutes. That's the long races. Um, And so we're breeding them with the thinnest of walls. When you get really thin walls, you get more horses bleeding as they race. And when they bleed, then of course, that's bad. So have we bred them too far? And have we taken the horse that won major races but has an an incredible amount of adrenaline flowing all the time and they are mean angry are uh, outward um, uplifted all these things you you don't want to breed a bunch of laggards that just lay around loving everybody (laughs) if you're going to have racehorses yeah so we breed them into we breed their feet wrong so yeah. that because yeah. they run faster when they have this foot than that foot and the big strong mustang foot is not very effective on the racetrack so we have thinner cannon bones and and splint bones and the bones break easier because we're running them at greater speeds and they can go faster when they have a slighter leg and a a more athletic leg but maybe not as strong a bone. So we we have a lot of people to blame and a lot of people to stop blaming. blaming. Uh, you want to win races, you do what you have to do to win races. But I think we really have to take some hard looks at what we're doing to the breed and be sure that if a horse is uh, judged to be genetically uh, dismal effort to improve the breed, then they should be taken away from the breeding shed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you you can't start dictating to people either. I know, I know. Uh, I was talking, and some people have listened to this podcast before, may have heard this, but I was talking to somebody recently about what do you, in, what can you do to induce people to buy horses, breed horses that last longer so they aren't done by four. Uh, Just as you're speaking, longevity is from health. And if we have compromised health, whether they glide over the ground really fast for a short amount of time, years-wise, or not, um, 
And it seems like the logical thing is to figure where the money goes. And if the yeah. money, the bigger purses are for older horses, uh, if somebody had a lot of money and they loved horses and it seemed like a good thing to spend some money on to improve the horse racing industry, they would put a million dollar pot on a six-year-old's race or a seven-year-old's race. Something like that, it seems like, could go in a better direction and then you're you're breeding for longevity and health. Maybe you even start them a little later um, because you can, because you know there's money down the road. Don't you feel like the Kentucky Derby sort of sets you up for failure in that it's only for three-year-olds? Yeah, don't don't just say the Kentucky Derby, though. Well, I know. Because I think you're, you're using, I think this is very valid. What you're saying is very valid. And uh, you're using the one race when, in yeah. fact... These two-year-old races that yeah. uh, win a million dollars, um, they're, they're harming the breed dramatically. And uh, those horses are pushed too early and too fast, and they break down. But uh, then they breed. And, uh, y- you know, when the money is there, they'll go after it. And uh, in my early days of the thoroughbred industry in 1965, 66, I was in New Zealand quite a bit, and they bred for huge distances there. Mm-hmm. And they never had any problems with these breakdowns mm-hmm. and these anxious areas where, you know, you didn't have a lot of adrenaline because you wanted a horse to be relaxed. And they were they were they had a lot of races for two miles, and they pushed their money out to the greater length. And then the U.S. got involved and started sending sprinters over and uh, then put money up, uh, and not not just the U.S., but European people too, put money up in the two-year-old races, mm-hmm. and they've bred backwards um, till they are about equal now to the rest of the world. And, and to a certain extent, uh, Australia has that same situation. They used to be far more distance racing. But you're right. If you put the money up for aged races, Mm -hmm. they will breed for age races. And uh, there is a problem there because people say, oh, I can't get as many people to come in if they want to come in and win right away. Mm -hmm. And there's no patience. Well, you know, that's us humans and we make those mistakes. Right. Yep. No microwave horses would be be great. I I think that that's uh, a bit more American than anything, too. As you say, maybe Australia has gone that way, too. But I do believe that, well, for example, Lasix, you had mentioned earlier, is banned pretty much, uh, you know, in all the first world countries uh, in the world except the U.S. So I think there is some ground to cover still here in the U.S. with certain rules, even before we um, find some a few billionaires that want to help horse racing out. But um, I don't know why if there's a lot of affluence in the thoroughbred industry, do you think it's just ignorance then that they don't put up purses? Cause anybody can put up a purse, right? You could have a Monty Roberts, uh, um, million dollar purse race if you wanted to. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But ignorance is, is a word that doesn't necessarily mean unintelligent. Right. Ignorance, ignorance can be a word that, Oh, I just didn't know that. Uh, unaware. Yeah, absolutely. Just unaware of that. So, yes, I think it is ignorance. And I think that we, 
who have been educated heavily, and I've been to four universities now. Um, we should be out there doing whatever we can to show people uh, where the fallacies are and to encourage these things that we're talking about here of caring for the horses and breeding them to be the strongest they possibly can be by using the techniques that you mentioned. They they really go where the money goes, and uh, we could do that. We We get people that want to speed and uh, get it done quicker, and then we get in trouble. But I think that as an organization of the uh, Thoroughbred Breeders Association, they could sit and think through rules that would assist us in uh, breeding better horses and caring for those horses in a better way. It'll be interesting to see what this Derby winner does in the future, but uh, he he is very um, interesting to me. Uh, one of the best horses I ever had in the world before race horses was a stallion that attacked me on one occasion. Uh, but I was riding a gelding that he didn't like, and I, I knew was it. There. And he really was attacking the gelding, and uh, it hurts just as badly. Yeah. When. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When they bite down on you, uh, whether they think it's the gelding they're biting or yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, th- things can be thought through a good deal better than what we've done in the past. But I don't know what we do. Those people that are running racing and, and doing the breeding, none of them have gone through the courses that I've been through in genetics and in behavioral sciences. Those two things, genetics and behavioral sciences, are the bullseye of what we're talking about. And virtually nobody in the thoroughbred industry has been through courses like that. And they haven't gone into those uh, laboratories and put their eyes into a microscope to see what we're doing to these horses. And I'm talking now, yes, the lungs, but also the bone structures, the joints, the, and the feet. Uh, of of these horses Uh, and the exercise programs that develop feet Mm -hmm. are very important and now it's becoming more popular to raise horses in motion more than these hothouse horses that we've raised in the past and an education will help you understand that but the best feet in the equine world are on mustangs Mm -hmm that have never had shoes on, that have never had their feet trimmed or cared for by some good veterinarian or farrier. Right. Why are those feet so good? Because if they didn't have good feet, they died. Exactly. They couldn't take the surrounding areas and live through them if they didn't have good feet. So they kept breeding themselves. The good ones died before they were old enough to breed and have another one. So they kept breeding better feet. And in uh, 150 years of coming from Spain over here, those Mustangs have developed feet that are just phenomenal. Shy Boy is still alive at 30 and never had a shoe on a foot, never had a nail driven in his foot one time. And he still has feet that look like, you know, the best feet you could ever want on a horse. 
So uh, we need we need to encourage a lot more study of the decisions made in this horse industry, and and stop being quick to blame people for things like this guy trying to save his life when the horse was attacking him. Well, great. Okay, call to arms. We uh, we are sharing the word, um, and we're defeating ignorance as much as we can, <laughs> as far far and wide as we can. So thanks for being on today. Thanks for sharing all that. We're working on getting Chris McCarran, and he has a perspective on thoroughbreds, too. So we've got that coming up, you and I. And I think he is one of the, probably one of the more outspoken advocates for the thoroughbred industry, too. So look at you two. We'll, yeah, we'll persist. Yeah, I, I have great respect for Chris. He's a fantastic guy who really has done his part to train other jockeys to be intelligent about their riding efforts. And, uh I give him a great deal of credit. I'm so happy to be on with him. Yeah, me too. Me too. It'll be fun. So we'll have you back real quick. It'll be just a quick turnaround on that. And I appreciate your time today. Whisper the language of the herd. Listen, you don't have to say a word. It's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place and learn the magic in the language of If I'm riding my horse near trees or hedges, I must be very careful to watch for plastic bags. If my horse sees one fluttering in the breeze, he wheels and runs in the opposite direction. It is dangerous and I have no idea what to do. Monty's answer. Regardless of the phobia targeted, the plastic bag can be a great tool for us in our effort to eliminate the fear. I have found it effective to use a light bamboo cane about 8 feet, 2.5 meters long. The ones I use are about half an inch, or 12 millimeters, in diameter and light enough for a small lady to handle with ease. You can typically buy these inexpensively at a garden center. A plastic shopping bag can be attached to one end of the pole using a rubber band to secure it. A second rubber band can encircle the plastic bag to hold it close to the pole so that it doesn't fly around in the breeze. I start out simply by scratching the horse all over his body with the end of the pole that has no plastic bag on it. The plastic bag is on my end of the pole under my arm. Working with the pole, I touch the horse until he accepts it anywhere I want to stroke him with it. When I see the horse relax, I take the pole away. If the horse tends to be frightened and elevate his adrenaline, the pole must continue to approach him. He soon learns that the way to get the pole to go away is to relax. When my horse is standing perfectly comfortable through the procedures involving the bamboo pole, I then reverse the pole and repeat the process with the end covered by the lashed down plastic bag. When the horse accepts this end of the pole, I then remove the second rubber band and allow the plastic to float freely. This will generally evoke a big fear response. I use the same technique of taking it away when he relaxes and bringing it towards him when he's tense. When my horse will stand with one little floating plastic bag, then I attach four, five, or six plastic bags to the same end as the original one. I work to achieve complete relaxation while these bags jump up and down on the back of the horse, rub under the belly, down the legs, and even from the chest up to the jaw, stroking the throat of the horse. 
If my horse is frightened of birds and things above him, I do a lot of elevating the plastic bags, flying them above his back, and then bouncing them down onto his hips, back, withers, neck, and even the top of his head. When the horse will stand for this procedure, you are well on your way to eradicating fears and phobias of all kinds. Remember that the dually halter is there for schooling should the horse try to blast away at any point in this process. If you feel as though you're getting into trouble, it is appropriate to back down to a level that is attainable and then once more work towards those procedures uh, that the horse finds difficult to accept. At this point, one can begin to target the particular phobia at issue. Obviously, we have by now dealt with the little plastic bag and have begun to eliminate the fear of birds coming from above. Now it is a matter of creating familiarity with the objects listed above. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to MontyRoberts.com and click on the words Ask Monty at the bottom of the page. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider. It doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online, too, on our forum. And there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged, and they're having the advanced exams right now as we speak. And then uh, in May 16 through June 3, the advanced course is going on. We're going to have some really exciting overseas guests, too, one from the Royal Stables, name unmentioned. It isn't the queen. Then in June, we've got our biggest event, I think, of the year is June 17 to 19, and it's called The Movement. And Jen is going to be joining us as well as Glenn and a lot of HRN podcasters and hosts are going to be there to uh, join in the festivities with us. A lot more about that soon. And then June 20 through 21, right after The Movement, on Monday and Tuesday is the Mountain Trail Clinic with three times world champion Mark Bolander. So you got to go see more to actually figure this all out at MontyRoberts.com for the calendar, or you can call 805-688-6288. And for details about today's show, you can head on over to Horsemanship Radio, where you're going to find pictures and links to today's guests and topics. As always, we love your feedback. Great way to give us feedback is on social media. On Facebook, it's Monty Roberts, the one with the little blue check mark. On Twitter, as well as Instagram, Monty underscore Roberts. What's underscore? That's the dash that's at the bottom. That's an underscore. <laughs> and thanks to our sponsors today, Hands On Gloves. Yes, and Monty Roberts University. And that is our reason for being. So be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours. 